Hey friends, Ashton here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. We are joined today yet again. Uh, I pinch myself every time I get to share some space with this individual. Uh, he's, he's been a mentor from afar. His books have marked my life. Uh, his books, Let Your Life Speak, The Promise of Paradox, The Active Life, A Hidden Wholeness. I mean, these, these book titles are meals in themselves. Uh, but he's joining us again today as we are entering this new series of trying to understand and learn, unveil, dance with. What is this idea and concept that we're talking about when we talk about the true self? And so that being said, joining us from Wisconsin today is my dear friend, Parker J. Palmer. Parker, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Ashton. It's always wonderful to be with you. Well, I'll tell you what, it is uh, the highlight of my week and month when you come on the podcast and I get to share some space with you. Um, your work in the world uh, has marked my life. I know some of, so much of our community has been marked by your work in the world, and um, just always grateful to get to share this time with you. Well, thank you, and, and back at you. <laughs> so... Um, we have a mysterious conversation you and I are going to have today, uh, and, and maybe we can peel back a little bit of that mystery. You know, you and I were talking before uh, our call here about, you know, when we talk about the true self, um, that uh, it, it, sometimes words aren't helpful. I'm learning that as I'm interviewing my friends like yourself, but yet we have to use words to kind of grasp what we're talking about here, this beautiful uh, reality that is available uh, to all of us, that's always been available, of living from and participating with the true self. I, I guess to start this conversation, um, where where did you first cross paths with the language of true self? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, it came actually at an interesting point in my life. Um, I was, I had just finished a PhD at Berkeley in sociology. It was 1969, and the cities were burning uh, because of the racial crisis of the 1960s, the ongoing racial reckoning in this country. And I decided that um, instead of going into academia, I would become a community organizer in Washington, D.C., working on issues of racial justice. So from 69 to 74, that's what I did, and it was um, it was hard work. It was uphill. It was conflicted. Uh, it was, you know, kind of at the heart of the beast, and um, it's a, always a tough place to stand, as I sometimes say, in the mm -hmm. tragic gap, uh, one of the gaps that will never be closed, but that we have to keep walking into in order to ameliorate it as best we can. So... I was really going through or entering into uh, what became five years later a pretty serious uh, period of burnout. And at some point along the way, I discovered the work of Thomas Merton yeah. for the first time in my life. Uh, Merton, of course, being a great 20th century spiritual figure, yeah. a monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane, a Trappist monk who lived a life vowed to silence um, and prayer, except for the fact that he was uh, 
a compulsive writer <laughs> to, to the benefit, I think, of humankind. He wrote 60 books in his lifetime, and um, they, uh, all of them, I think, have had a powerful impact. Certainly the, the collected body of his work has had a powerful impact. And what's so interesting about Merton is that through his writing, uh, instead of sort of disappearing from the world of action, uh, which is how we often think of the life of a monk, he actually entered into and engaged the world of action at a very deep level. He, mm -hmm. he was a prophet. He had a prophetic voice in terms of race, uh, war and peace, and related issues. So I began reading Merton largely for my own sustenance uh, to help me draw deep on some of those mystical traditions that he was so well acquainted with, that he had explored so deeply. Those mystical truths, really, uh, more than traditions. Yeah. Um, and I found him a very powerful guide to that territory. So I discovered this phrase, true self, in the, in the middle of his writing. I feel lucky to have... Um, early on in my life, not only discovered figures like Thomas Burton, <clears throat> who had not really been covered in my own Methodist church upbringing, uh, nor in the year I spent at, at Union Theological Seminary in New York, because generally speaking, at least back in the day, the mystical traditions that run through all of the world's great religions were generally ignored. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, but they tap into an aquifer that you know that feeds all the wells, and so I not only received a pretty early introduction to those traditions. I was thirty at the time, and and I needed what they had to teach. But I also had an an education that had taught me that that words um, serve us best when. We understand that they point to realities sometimes that one can't really name. Mm. Um, it's a it's, it's an interesting um, paradox, really, that we need language to point towards that for which we have no language. Mm -hmm. um, and so, this this phrase "true self," which has cognates in every wisdom tradition that I know anything about. Um, it, in, for some people, it's called soul. For the Hasidic Jews, it's called the spark of divine of the divine in every human being. For Buddhists, it's called big self or no self. Um, for secular humanists, it's called identity and integrity. So all of this language is pointing towards something for which no one has the true name. And I, and I think as we begin, you and I here to discuss it, it's really important to name that and, and acknowledge that. Um, I've always said, I don't, I don't care what you name it because it's named in so many different ways and all of the names are, are just fingers pointing toward the moon, as yeah. you said when we were talking earlier. Yeah. Um, but that you name it is really important to me because when we don't name this what I'll call this sacred quality at the heart of every human being, 
It's really the being in human being, I mm-hmm. think. When we don't name that, that's when we, when we devolve, uh, degenerate, really, our sense of self and of other people into something like commodities to be deployed in the marketplace uh, or raw material to be shaped uh, into whatever function we need it to perform. Um, when we don't name the being in human being, then people become objects mm. rather than people. That's good. And there, there's so much of that, you know, going around in our politics and in our culture, and it's so wounding to people that every every time we can, you know, genuinely for ourselves say, here's a word that points to something that we need to hold sacred, to hold in deep respect in every human being, I think it's the net gain for the human race. Well said. Very well said. Um, You know, I I started to dig into a hidden wholeness again, uh, prepping for this call. And um, I think I underlined every sentence in the book. Um, I was trying, (laughs) I was looking at my notes and I was like, I don't know where to begin here. Um, but, but I, I think one of the things that, that you constantly come back to is that, uh, this is not something that you achieve. This is something that you receive. This is total gift, totally given. Um, hold my hand, help us understand. And, And maybe this is where we introduce the false self and all of its camouflages. Um, but talk to me about that original union that's always been there and and how when we when we use this name of the true self it kind of helps wake up a little bit of that 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 eureka that aha that beautiful knowing that there is this hidden wholeness that that you 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 will not go find this wholeness outside of you you actually already have it mhm yeah um well thank you um I, I myself have to read that book every now and then, or reread it in order in order to <laughs> friendly hear reminder. Talking to, to Parker uh, talking from to Parker, myself, you know. <laughs> I remember what I what I once understood that maybe I've lost or forgotten, <laughs> because some of this is about caring for true self as well as deploying it in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the two very much go hand in hand, and that's something that I began working on back in the in the late 60s and early 70s when I was burning out as a community organizer. But, you know, I, I, in my book, Let Your Life Speak, um, I wrote a sentence, posed a question that lives with me pretty constantly. And, and the question was, um, is the life I'm living the same as the life that wants to live in me? Is, mm. is the life I'm living the same as the life that wants to live in me? Now, I know there are people who who will say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> the life I'm living is the life I'm living. What's this business of a life that wants to live in me? Well, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can say that when I quiet down and allow myself to feel, to truly feel in body, mind, and spirit, both the joys 
the satisfactions and the stresses and strains, the, the suffering that's in my own life, I begin to get a sense that maybe the life I'm living is not in uh, complete congruence mm. or harmony with a life that wants to live in me. Because there are these system strains. You know, if, if a bridge, <laughs> to use a very crude mechanical metaphor, if a bridge across a river starts to groan and creak, uh, a good highway engineer is going to keep traffic off it until they can <laughs> fix the source of those strains, which may end up, if they if they go unattended, dumping a whole lot of cars into the river, as as actually happened in Minneapolis a few years back, because of the deteriorating infrastructure of this United States. Well, um, human beings have an infrastructure too. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of spiritual infrastructure. And I think we have to attend very closely to the points where it's um, holding up well under the pressures of life and the points where it's creaking and groaning and showing signs of, of giving way. Um, so if, if, you're, if you get quiet long enough, and again, if you really pay attention, I think paying attention is so critical to this whole conversation. You know, Mary Oliver, the great poet, has a great line about how she doesn't know much about the soul, but she knows that it's made of attentiveness, Mm. um, which is a line I've always loved. So if you pay attention to your own life, you're going to feel both the stresses and strains and the joys and satisfactions that start to give you clues about whether the life you are living is the life that wants to live in you. And this, you know, this notion that that we have within us a sort of template, I'm not saying it's fixed and frozen, it's evolving, this template, as we interact with our environment and with the circumstances of our lives. Um, just as they say, you know, our DNA is given, but it it comes up differently in us according to environmental circumstances. What what it's going to manifest is variable depending on what's going on around us and how we're, how we're dealing with it. But if we, if we pay attention um, to this range of sensibilities we have about what's working and what isn't working, Then I think that one of the first things that happens, and this is a challenge for a lot of religious people, is that that we stop trying to live a life that is dictated by somebody else's list of oughts, of what I ought to be doing with my life. We, we, We begin to walk away from a life that is dictated by external norms and standards. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that we ought to be doing. Um, we ought to be solving childhood poverty. We ought to be making peace everywhere on this planet. We ought to be collaborating with um, the norms and processes of American democracy rather than trying to bring them down. Um, we ought to be able to treat each other as equals in not only in the eyes of God, but in, in our own eyes. And yet 
these are things that um, that not every one of us is gifted in every moment to do. You can make a contribution to important matters such like as that by finding out where you fit in this ecosystem of need, where your gifts and your opportunities um, make you an important and relevant actor vis-a-vis certain desirable social goals, certain desirable moral and ethical goals. But there's all, there are also a lot of things that will make you stretch and strain if you don't stay close to your own, um, well, to your own true self. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that it, 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 um, it's actually more challenging to ask yourself, how can I live the ethic that grows in me rather than how can I pretend that I'm living the ethic, the ethic that has been dictated to me? Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's a deeper life challenge to say, okay, this is the, these are my gifts. These are the points at which I intersect the world. And these are the ways in which I can use my gifts helpfully toward goals of love, truth, and justice in the world that's within my reach. That, that's a challenging equation to work out. But I think that it, where, where it takes you is to what I call faithfulness, um, which I think is ultimately the standard by which we need to measure our lives as we go along with that daily question, am I being faithful to my gifts? Am I being faithful to the needs um, around me that, as I perceive them? And am I being faithful to the way my gifts might intersect with and meet some of those needs? Beautiful. This this conversation of oughts, the, the, the things that we ought to be doing, maybe some of that narrative that uh, uh, bounces around in our head versus the conversation of, of faithfulness. I went back to one of your articles that you wrote, Now I Become Myself, came out 20 years ago. Um, and there was, there was a phrase I underlined there about wearing other people's faces. Is, is this a little, is this a little parallel there to that conversation that you you were just talking about? Yeah, yeah, it is. That's a, that's a good catch, Ashton. Um, so this, the phrase, as you know, uh, comes from a, a poem that I love by May Sarton, um, called now I become myself and uh, I'm, I want to read just the first few lines of that poem please uh, where the references that you just mentioned occur uh, she says now I become myself it's taken time many years and places I have been dissolved and shaken worn other people's faces run madly as if time were there terribly old, crying a warning, hurry, you will be dead before, what, before you reach the morning or the end of the poem is clear or love is safe in the walled city. I'll just stop it there. It goes on for a number of more more additional lines. But it, 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 it's, a, it's such an interesting way to begin this poem that, that 
first of all says you don't become yourself simply because you were born. <laughs> um, you know, it it is true that every infant and every little child is who they are, and that's why many of us, and I'm one of these people, really love being around little kids as they they remind us what a real human being looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they are who they are in every moment of their lives. There's there's no wall of separation between uh, their inner lives and their outer lives. They're, they're, they have yet to, to ask themselves, is it safe for me to be who I really am? And sadly, what happens as life goes on is that people learn sadly, tragically, sometimes they learn it at home and some, almost all of us learn it at school, but it isn't always safe to show up as who we really are. Um, there are lots and lots of gay and lesbian young people who can tell you some really hard stories about that, but we all have our own version of realizing that um, I need to become somebody other than myself in order to stay safe in the world. And that poses some big problems if you fail to pay attention to that and if you fail to do something about it um, as you get older. Uh, it, it would be a great tragedy, would it not, to die miles away from the true self mm. that you brought into this world. I've often, I'm have often i 82 now, and I've often thought that I can imagine painful ways to die, but I can't imagine, cannot imagine sadder ways to die than with a sudden realization that I never really showed up in this world as who I am, um, that I had all those years on the face of the earth and didn't show up as myself. So May Sarton says, to return to your question, May Sarton has this line, I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces. And I think we all uh, know what that experience is like. You you're searching for your own identity, you know, and you're in your teenage years or in your early 20s. Uh, life is starting to get earnest, and you're searching for a sense of self that you don't have yet, partly because it was stolen from you by either at home or in a process of schooling that has made it unsafe to be you. So you kind of tuck it away and hide it out and eventually maybe just plain forget uh, what that true self really really looks like and sounds like. So you find other people's faces. You know, maybe it's one of the popular kids at school. Um, or maybe, you know, it's, it's somebody else um, who you're not. <laughs> and you put that face on, you... you try to act like them, speak like them, behave like them, believe like them, um, in order, again, to achieve safety, which is, of course, one of the fundamental drives of human beings uh, on the face of a pretty complicated and sometimes dangerous earth. Um, and and it, it's a process sometimes, for many of us, it's a process to realize, oh, that's not my face. I need to find my own. I remember I remember vividly early in my career as a teacher, I had had uh, one or two really, really great teachers. And with one of them in particular, um, I mimicked his style. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to uh, speak as he did, to inflect my speech as he did, to you know, to use the same kind of energy and facial expressions he did. I don't know that it was altogether conscious. It was probably a lot unconscious, but the point is it wasn't working. (laughs) And I had to realize after some pain and suffering of feeling like a bad teacher, and of course I was feeling like a bad teacher because I was faking it. I wasn't teaching from my own identity and integrity. I had to realize that I needed to find my own face and that David's face was not working for me. I think that's a huge moment in life. At the same time, I don't say that with, you know, with as I don't say it 100% as in a negative way because um, sometimes you're lucky to have a decent face to put on, and David's was a decent face. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. Um, and so I wasn't emulating, um, you know, the neighborhood thug in an, in an effort to... Um, uh, to stay safe in my neighborhood, I was, I was emulating a good man, and still, the pain it caused me um, helped me take that journey towards mm. becoming myself. Another phrase um, that I'd forgotten, and and I, it, it must have spoken to me back when I was in hidden wholeness because I had a lot of notes written around it, but was the phrase a graceless schedule. Um, and you wrote about that and I, it was, it kind of stopped me in my tracks yesterday when I was reading it again. Uh, what was the phrase again? It it was a a graceless schedule. Um, Hmm. and, and how just, you know, going everywhere, doing everything, saying yes to everything, you know, the ego wants to say yes to all things, to everybody, to be everything to everybody. And I think the point you were getting at in Hidden Wholeness was um, that pause, that sacred silence, that space, uh, that gap where you can kind of step back a bit. And and I think the more I have these conversations around true self, uh, one of the questions I'm going to start asking myself is, is is, is, is the week I'm about to enter a graceless schedule? (laughs) Uh, Because if so... Uh, then there's probably going to be more ego and false self there than than I want to bring true self into the world. Um, so I just love yeah. that phrase that you wrote about. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I remember. I, I I think I was probably writing that about some of the retreat work I do and and how sometimes when we gather together in groups, we set such a breakneck pace you know, we we're saying to ourselves, well, we only have eight hours together, and so we better, you know, jam in everything we want to do or need to do or is important to do. And what that eventually does um, is to undermine um, those those openings of space and time that allow us to do the most important things mm-hmm. in life. You know, I ha- I don't remember if I told this story in a hidden wholeness. But I have a favorite teaching story that I think about a lot. Um, it comes from medical education, which is always an interesting source to me because um, medical education is a serious business. Yep. You know, my life and your life may depend on how well our doctor is educated many, many times. 
And in this particular story, a master surgeon is teaching her students a critical moment in open heart surgery. And she says, at this moment, you have exactly 60 seconds to tie off that artery before your patient dies. So you had better take your time. (laughs) And I love, what I love about that story is not only its kind of poetic, paradoxical quality, but its real-life application. Um, You know, we can be the breathless surgeon who enters into that moment with high anxiety because they only have 60 seconds, and the hand trembles, and the patient dies. Or we can be that surgeon who understands that if you enter 60 seconds in the right way, if you enter it in a centered, grounded, calm, trusting way, you have plenty of time to do what needs to be done. It's a a story that interests me a lot because it's not wishful thinking. It's exactly, for example, how airline pilots are trained. Um, Every, you know, the famous saying about flying a a big jet is it's hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. (laughs) And, uh, and a jet pilot, a commercial pilot or a military pilot is taught very systematically how to stay calm, collected, grounded, centered in those moments of terror so that he or she can take life-saving action for all the souls on board. And it seems to me that, you know, we've we've seen uh, those kinds of moments in our own lives. We've either seen other people handle them well, or we've been given the grace to handle them well. And it's possible to prepare oneself for that. I think trust has a lot to do with it. Trust in the life process and trust in ourselves that, that when the moment comes, we will have what we need to negotiate that, that moment. Um, I, I'll go back to teaching again, since that's been such an important part of my work in the world. Um, I remember in my early years as a teacher how I would prepare for for the next class in in a way that um, actually shut my teaching down. I was well prepared. I, I I was you know locked and loaded, and you know ready to simply talk at them for the entire fifty minute hour, which is what I did. And that's why my teaching wasn't any good. <laughs> I was I was so full of ideas and, to be honest, so full of myself. Here comes the ego again, mm-hmm. which is not not true self. So full of myself that I had no room in me to hear their questions, their puzzlements, the experiences that from their lives that might actually help me make the points that I wanted to make so that I had to get to the point. I had to work to get to the point as a teacher where I could say to myself, look, Parker, you don't have 50 minutes worth of things to say in this class as you go into it here. 
And that's a good thing because that will allow you to make openings for your students to enter into the conversation. And you are now at a point where you can trust that you are, you have what you need to respond to whatever they say in an educative way, um, which is a, just a wonderful hmm. place to reach in life hmm. where you're no longer running scared yeah. and have to kind of dominate a situation but can open yourself to the unexpected because that's that's where the juice is. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, in, in any human relationship, I think it's in the unexpected that we find the surprises that really illumine us, inform us, light us up, um, and send us on our way in new and uh, creative directions. Mm. So the true self makes space, opens space. False self mm-hmm. is concerned about filling the space. <laughs> yeah, it I like. think that's yeah. uh, I think that's right, yeah. and, and I think filling space is always an act of fear. Mm-hmm. You know, I've 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 seen so many people who simply who simply lecture nonstop from behind the podium. Some of them are great at it, but that's a minority. A, a lot of them are not. It, lecturing is a high art, and uh, it involves uh, being a dramatist, among mm-hmm. other things, um, a gift not everyone has. But when I see these and hear these nonstop lectures, I also smell fear, mm-hmm. uh, the fear of a person who's at some deep level saying to themselves, if I open this up, God only knows what's going to happen and I won't know how to respond. Mm. I'll be hanging here, twisting in the wind, embarrassed. Um, I don't want that to happen, so I'm just going to keep talking. Keeps in that state of certainty, certitude, uh, versus mystery and wonder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and if you think about it, that's that's uh, that certitude and mystery which excludes wonder and joy is really a a state of death in life. Hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the lines I've often used when I've done faculty workshops is, I understand you all want rigor. I'm all for it. But there's a difference between rigor and rigor mortis. Um, (laughs) And and we, we better spend some time thinking about that and figuring out how to keep rigor alive. Um, because there's a lot of rigor mortis going on in higher education. Mm. Have you found that after 82 years of learning, walking with, uh, coming to understand, coming to know more of this true self, that the more you learn, the, the more you operate from that place, that the ego and false self becomes even more camouflaged, even more uh, uh, cunning, or what maybe creative is the word that I should use. Um, mm. I, I, I feel like for my own journey, um, when I'm in that space of where I feel like I am grounded, centered, whole, coming from the place of the true self, I, I, at the same time, have to be very, very leery of where that ego can slip in because it can be awfully camouflaged at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Um, I, it's certainly 
was that way for me for for a number of years and and on into what most people would think of as my elder years um, post 65 for example although 65 seems pretty young to me right now (laughs) having just turned 82 Um, I think you know I do think that the closer at least for me I'll say the closer I get to the horizon of my own mortality and at 82 that's that's an undeniable horizon in in the way it isn't when you're 72, 62, 52, 42. Um, the closer I get, the 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 more ego seems to fade away, mm. which is not to say that I'll ever be completely beyond it. I don't I don't think that happens. In fact, I think we have to be a little careful in talking about ego uh, to. Uh, to note for ourselves and for everyone that there is such a thing as a healthy ego, Mm. which is needed to stand up straight in the world. And sadly, there are lots and lots of people I've, I've heard many women talk about this who, who feel so um, bereft of that healthy ego because of social circumstances, because of sexism, misogyny, that um, they have a hard time functioning in a way that that they in the way they want to function. Um, so, three cheers for the healthy ego, which <laughs> tells us you know tells us you you know things that are important, you know things that are worth saying, you have a voice to say them, say them. You will make a contribution to the larger good. Not everyone will understand you, but you, your sense of self will be strengthened in the, in the act by acting out of a healthy ego. So I don't want to deny or, or neglect any of, of that. But um, the unhealthy ego, the ego that um, is is utterly self-serving and forgets the common good, or you know, in the case of a teacher, forgets the students. Um, and simply wants to look good in and of itself um, and is always asking itself, how am I doing? How am I looking? Um, It might even be a question, do they like me? Do they love me? You know, which sounds like maybe an understandable question to ask, but it can really kill off Mm -hmm. the most important part of good teaching, which is to understand that collapsing into your students' psyches is not a good idea. Um, it's not a popularity contest. It's about educating people, and there are sometimes strains and tensions in that process that the unhealthy ego simply can't abide or tolerate. I, I, again, I have a story that I think about a lot. I mean, it's not a single story, but when I began making my living, I don't know, 40 years ago by not only writing books and articles, but doing a fair amount of public speaking and found myself up in front of large audiences. I think I've spoken to crowds as large as 5,000 physicians at a conference down in Florida one time and others that approached that number. Um, I would often, you know, in the early days, be, be very, very nervous. And while I could cover it, um, and I did fairly successfully, 
um, inwardly I was a mess, and I and so I had to, you know, to to make that issue part of my inner life agenda. And what I came to understand eventually was that I was walking out on that stage, basically asking myself the question: um, Can I do this in a way that's going to make me look cool, and you know, receive their approval to the extent that they? Can I get a standing ovation, in effect? You know, that would be the way to shorthand it. And I'd, I'd be straining my energies in that direction. And, of course, nothing could be more distorting than in, inner questions of that sort. What I came to eventually, Ashton, is simple and obvious, but it really served me well as, as I came to focus on it. I'm not out there to put on a show. I'm out there to serve. Mm. Time and again for me, the service motif has saved my bacon um, and has you know, drawn on the healthy ego but cranked down the destructive ego. So I, what am I serving out there? Well, two things. I'm wanting to serve the people who are in front of me, these physicians, for example, who are doing life-saving work all over this city or all over this state or all over this country and at the same time i want to serve the my deepest beliefs and convictions about how the helping professions like medicine operate best which is out of the identity and integrity of the practitioner and i know this is a topic that isn't covered in medical school which is sometimes a lot like training an auto mechanic um literally mechanical in its in its model of education but we have tons of of clinical evidence that a physician a healthcare provider who is in touch with his or her own spiritual dimension uh, is better able to enter a kind of holistic relationship with a patient that evokes his or her spiritual dimension and we know that when that's evoked more healing happens at deeper levels yep. than when we simply approach the patient as a broken machine to be fixed. So those are the kind of ideas that I want to serve well when I'm in front of healthcare professionals. And both of these, these notions of what, who or what I'm serving, on the one hand, the physicians, on the other hand, these ideas, take the focus off of me and free me in the moment um, to, you know, to, to be who I am more truly and to do what I more truly want to do while that unhealthy ego, that, that grab-the-headlines ego, kind of recedes uh, in, into the background. But that actually worked for me and carried me through a number of years um, I'm glad I, that all of that came to me fairly early on. That's beautiful. Um, so I want to kind of put a bow on this, uh, which that may be a bad metaphor uh, <laughs> for mm-hmm. the true self, uh, not to dress it up, but but to get at the, like, if you could say after 82 years, this is what I know about the true self. Um, if I just asked you, Parker, what do you know about this beautiful, wonderful mystery 
that that one name we've called it is the true self, uh, right? It's not nameable. Um, what do you know about this? Mm-hmm. Great question. Well, I think what I know in a nutshell, Ashton, is you ignore it at your peril, but if you collaborate with it as best you know how, you will be richly rewarded. Um, yeah, I think that's bottom line, that's it. And when I say at your peril, I, I really mean that. Those who've read my books know that um, one of the things I've written about is several deep dives in, in my life into clinical depression, which is a very perilous place to be. And I think it was in that, in that very deep darkness, that really life-threatening darkness, that I began in ways that are still mysterious to me to hammer out, you know, in the, in the fire, as it were, in the forge, um, some of these notions of, of who we most deeply are, of what it is that's sacred in us, of what it is that needs to be honored, and what it is that will extract a price from us if we don't honor it. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's the better part of wisdom by a long shot. It's 100% of wisdom to um, remember that we ignore true self at our peril, but if we attend to it, the rewards will be rich and deep. Well, well said. Um, I feel like we could do this for hours. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one of these days, if I'm ever back uh, speaking up in Madison or near you, I hope we can cross paths, give you a hug, shake your hand one day, and keep the dialogue going about the mystery. No, I'd of- like that a lot, Dash, and I'll look forward to that possibility. Meanwhile, you just take good care, and may may you and your family be well. Thank you so much, Parker. Well, I'm always grateful for your time and energy, grace and peace, and uh, thanks for sharing with us today. Take care. Bye-bye. 